everybody hi welcome back it's been a while i feel like because we had a, a little break in there but i'm brianne roos here with carrie borkowski and welcome back to tell me this for our new listeners this is a podcast about all things belonging community connections collaboration and holding space for what is possible over the life of this pod we've explored research and scholarship on or related to belonging we've shared stories listened and engaged with diverse individuals about belonging during the pandemic as parents, as leaders, as human beings who show up for all the things. This season, we're journeying into belonging in our relationships with friends, spouses, coworkers, neighbors, really on all levels. And this is such a fun episode because we have somebody on here who <laughs> I guess we met in 1997, Liz, yeah. right? Yep. <laughs> yep. So we have Dr. Elizabeth Rada here, um, who is a friend of mine from college and a, um, a teammate. She was the coxswain on our crew team. And she's got all sorts of really great experience. So super excited to, to have this conversation. And let me just give you her formal bio. So Dr. Elizabeth Rade is the Director of School Services at EdAdvance, a regional education service center in Connecticut. She's passionate about challenge-based learning, student-driven passion projects, and giving students voice and choice in our classroom. Shout mm -hmm. out to two of our favorite words. Yeah. <laughs> she spent 16 years as a math and special ed teacher in the middle and high schools and now conducts research on STEM education, writes curricula, and provides professional learning for public schools throughout Connecticut. She's currently supporting over a dozen districts in implementing capstone projects for high school juniors and seniors, and she's an active member of the National Capstone Consortium. Liz is married to a sixth grade math teacher and is the mother of two daughters, ages 11 and 13. And when not working or chauffeuring her children, <laughs> she's an avid fiber artist. Mm. And I feel like the chauffeuring Liz's chauffeuring is next level because of the sports that her kids are in. So hopefully mm -hmm. we'll get into that a little bit too. Sure. Next yeah. level compared to you, Brianne, that's saying a lot because I feel like your your girls are also into yeah. the sport. Yeah, we do a lot of driving, but Liz has to drive further to her practices and she her daughter is competing internationally. So that's like... No, cool. <laughs> it's intense. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I have I to say, Liz, first welcome. Of course, we're so happy to have you. I'm excited to see where this conversation takes us. I had to Google fiber artist because <laughs> I had no idea what it what it was. So maybe that'll come up at some point in the conversation because it, it seems really, really cool. Something I would know nothing about, but it seems really awesome. So yeah, she's very, very crafty. Yeah. Um, so Liz, we always start with just a check-in question. So how are you? How's your family? How are things going? I'm great. It's a really fun week because this is spring break in Connecticut. I don't know if it aligns with anybody else's spring break in the country. It seems like people have different spring breaks everywhere, but most Connecticut public schools are off this week. So my girls are home. Um, my younger one is at a sleepover. My older one is still sleeping because it's only nine <laughs> o'clock. Um, yeah. So, and my husband is home for the week, so it just gives us a lot of flexibility and, um, changes things up a little bit. So it's nice. Yeah. That, that sounds lovely. Yeah. We mass I'm in Massachusetts and our April break is next week. So we're looking okay. forward to, yeah, to some of that. So, so Liz, I, I assume Brianne has shared with you and perhaps you've listened to an episode or two. And as, as Brianne mentioned in the intro, this really is a podcast all about belonging and we've been really lucky and privileged to hear all kinds of definitions and stories of what this word sort of conjures up for people. And so 
based on your, you know, expertise in the the capstone world, working with middle schoolers and high schoolers and your time, you know, in sports with Brienne in college and <laughs> all the things that come together to make you who you are, um, we're really curious to understand how this contributes to and influences your notions of belonging. So since Brienne and I started talking about me being on the podcast, belonging has been something that has been like top of my mind. Every time <laughs> I think about it, I'm like, oh, do I belong here? Do I not belong here? What makes me feel like I belong? Mm. So one of the things I was thinking about was how much I, how lucky I am to have felt that I belong in most spaces, that I haven't <clears throat> felt that I didn't belong somewhere most of the time. And so, you know, I start with school and I always very much felt like I belonged at school. I was good at it. Um, my teachers liked me because <laughs> I was good at it. I was very um, compliant and worked hard and it was never hard for me. So I was never trouble. Um, so that really sets me up and sets anybody up for a path of feeling like they belong in a place where they spend most of their time. So mm. school for me, I really felt like I belonged. And it was so interesting because I sat down with my family before we were going to record the podcast and I asked them about belonging. And my older daughter immediately said, well, I don't feel like I belong at school. And my assumption was that she was going to talk about race. So my children are both adopted. They are not biologically related, but they are both um, biological children of white women and black men. So they are biracial. They are both obviously biracial. They are very dark skinned. Um, they have different hair than me. Um, my husband is white. So we are an obvious adoptive family. It's transracial adoption. People stare, people look, people question. And my assumption was that she was going to talk about not feeling like she belonged because she is one of few children of color. And she talked about not belonging because she struggles with school and she feels mm -hmm. like her teachers always expect more from her. And why don't you understand this? And why weren't you paying attention? And that she gets not in trouble, but reprimanded a lot in school because she doesn't um, because school isn't easy for her. So she doesn't feel like she belongs at the place where she spends eight hours a day. Mm -hmm. And just this past weekend or the weekend before Easter, I was at the ASCD conference, which is one of the biggest education conferences in the country. And Brandon Fleming was the keynote speaker. Um, and he wrote the book, Miseducated, which is going to be a movie soon. And he was an incredible speaker and he tells his story. Um, he's a black man. He was raised in poverty, um, never felt like he belonged in school, saw, didn't see himself in what was going on at school, but did see himself on the streets in drugs and gangs you know, did all of those things, um, but also saw himself on the basketball court. So that is where his kind of one shot at success was, was to get recruited to college. And he was recruited and he um, had a career ending injury the summer before freshman year. So he never actually made it to play basketball, ended up dropping out of college the first time, went back um, as an English major and was totally an outcast and fulfilled every expectation everybody had for him to do, to not be successful. But a teacher took him under 
her wing. He um, met a pastor and eventually like it was all about belonging for him, for him to be able to be successful. So that's been kind of top of my mind in these phrases like windows and mirrors and you can't be what you can't see um, are just so critical to belonging where I could be anything because I always saw people that looked like me doing the things that I wanted to do, which was teaching, leading, being successful in some way. And, you know, when I think about Brandon's story, he didn't see those things. So how could you know what your opportunities are? And I think about raising my children who don't have a lot of um, role models of color in their life. So how can they, like, how could they feel like they belong if school's hard and it's, it's not where you feel like you fit in. And I think about, I don't think about belonging for myself until I don't feel like I belong, where I think other people have the complete opposite of experience where they never feel like they belong until they find the right place. Hmm. I just wrote down yet another book I need to buy and read. I know, same. (laughs) It sounds amazing. Um, So I just love the stories and I love how you weave that all together. That was fantastic. I want to check in um, because one thing we've, another thing we've really asked guests is sort of definition. And what I'm hearing is seeing seeing yourself in these places, seeing yourself in these roles. Um, the words that bubbled up to me, up for me were, was fitting in. And I'm just wondering, like, I guess the way I'll ask it is this. <clears throat> I understand in my journey and my continuing learning that diversity for diversity's sake doesn't work. So even if we create a space where um, individuals like Brandon can see himself it doesn't necessarily mean belonging shows up. And so I'm just wondering, can you sort of put a little bit more words on sort of your definition of belonging? Hmm. I guess I have to say, yes, I can put more words, right? <laughs> you don't have to. You can. This is an invitation. You can say, no, I'm going to stick with what I said. That's perfectly okay. <laughs> um, so You know, I've listened to a lot of episodes of your podcast and Carrie, you've said you've pushed on the word comfortable a lot that belonging doesn't necessarily mean comfortable, but, Mm. um, you know, I listened to the episode with Kate who described (laughs) big B belonging and little B belonging (laughs) in so many different ways. Um, but I feel like belonging is easier to it's easier for me to understand not belonging than Mm. belonging Mm -hmm. and not belonging. It's not just discomfort because I certainly feel discomfort if I don't belong. Um, But I also feel, I guess I feel like I I need to fight flight or freeze, Mm. um, which is beyond just discomfort. So, you know, I was trying to think of places where I didn't feel like I belong. And one of the first examples that came to mind was thinking about college and being at a bar because I never drank in college. Um, I still don't drink. I've never, it's just not there wasn't any real reason except that I weighed like 80 pounds in college and was like, I'm going to get drunk on one drink. So I just, (laughs) and I, I really like control. So I was never a drinker in college, which meant that, um, 
when we were at bars, if we were at bars and I was using a fake ID, which sorry, mom, sometimes I did. Um, <laughs> it wasn't mine though. I promise I borrowed it. Um, I was on such high alert because I was afraid of getting in trouble because um, I didn't ever want to get in trouble. Um, Brianna and I did get in trouble once and we thought our lives were over. True um, story. <laughs> true, very true story. You would have thought we had done something really, really bad, but um, we didn't. But when I was at a bar, I was never comfortable. I never wanted mm. to be there except that I wanted to be with my friends. And I didn't see other people like me who weren't drinking. I didn't see other people like me who were so anxious about getting in trouble. Everybody had their first drink and they were like, oh, that's fine. Like, what's the worst that can happen? Where I was like constantly on alert just for my own safety. And then also felt responsibility for the safety of my friends, because I knew that I was the most responsible at some points in those nights. So you know, I think of that experience and how like physically uncomfortable I was, emotionally uncomfortable. I just, um, I couldn't wait till the first person said like, all right, let's go back home. And I was always one of the first to leave. Never would I be like, no, I'm having so much fun. I'm going to stay a little longer. <laughs> like I couldn't wait to get back on campus. Mm. Um, I was looking for any reason to escape, but I wanted to be with my friends because I did belong with them. I just didn't belong in the place that we were at. Cause I didn't feel the same way when we were say at a party on campus, it just felt very different to be, um, in a bar. Mm -hmm. But I think about, you know, places where other places where I, we don't fit in. My daughters have so many experiences of, um, feeling like we're being stared at or feeling like we're, um, we're not welcome because our family is so obviously different. And my kids now have come to a point where they sometimes think it's funny when people, um, give a second look or say, oh, that's your dad or, <clears throat> Like, oh, that's your mom. But um, for a long time, it's it's hard. It doesn't feel good for them to feel like they're so different. Um, yeah. I'm wondering, I, I'm so curious. I just want to pull on this a little bit and then I'll be quiet, Brian, so you can. So you said that on campus or at a at a party on campus, you, you felt different than being at a bar. Is there something like... Can you put your finger on like what it was about that place? I think um I think campus felt safe to me because mm. I could leave at any time. I could walk and be back in my dorm room and under my covers as quickly as I wanted to Got and it. didn't need to leave with someone. Okay. Where I really felt trapped when I was mm. at a bar. There were so many people. There was um, they weren't walkable. They also weren't in the safest places. So um, it certainly wasn't a place where I could just escape easily, where for mm. me, um, escape, being able to escape is huge. And when I had years of my life where I was really struggling with um, some panic disorder, um, 
it was all about whether or not I could escape. So mm-hmm. being on trains, you can't escape a train. You can't escape an airplane. Like it's in the air and you can't escape. But, and it felt the same at a bar. I was trapped mm. um, and trapped in a place where I wasn't comfortable, yeah. where at least on campus, I felt like <clears throat> I wasn't trapped. I could leave a dorm room and be back in my dorm room in seconds, minutes. Yeah. Thank you for that additional insight that that makes so much, that just resonates. That makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. I really want to think about the high alert. And I think this is a really interesting kind of turn that we're taking in this episode where we're really focusing on the not belonging and what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot to unpack here because we know that when you're on high alert, that's all that you can experience to to a degree, right? Like you can't learn, you can't relax, you can't have fun, you can't enjoy yourself because neurologically we're so geared to do what you said, fight, fight, flight, fight, flee, or freeze. Right. So that really like hung with me when you said that you felt that you were on high alert, you're physically uncomfortable, you're emotionally uncomfortable, which is funny because you said, you know, I want to move past just discomfort because it's more than discomfort. It is, but it's like heightened discomfort. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like I'm uncomfortable sitting in a doctor's office because I know what's coming next is like a doctor's appointment. But like when I don't feel like I belong, it is like Mm -hmm. it's overwhelming. It's that lizard part of your brain that's working and Mm -hmm. it hijacks any sort of frontal lobe work. I mean, it is the amygdala taking over everything. And um, gosh, this is not the direction I thought this was all going to take, but I think it's really interesting because I think yes, the not belonging does put you on high alert. So when I think about Taya who struggles in school, like if she's always on high alert because she feels like her teachers are going to reprimand her, then she can't function and learn and pay attention to the things that her teachers want her to pay attention to, because all she's paying attention to is trying to not get in trouble, which means that she's just going to continue to get in more trouble. Um, or get it, you know, she's not getting in trouble, but she's like reprimanded. She feels like it's trouble. Um, and you know, I think the same thing is true when you go into any space where you feel like you don't belong, like there's, your mind is so swirling around, like, how do I make myself feel like I belong or why, why don't I feel like I belong and what's going to happen because I don't belong, um, that you almost can't be your best self. And so then you just, um, and I think Brandon talks about this is like when you're on that such a heightened, like, I don't belong here and you become protective of yourself, you, um, you can't be your best self. And so then you play out all the stereotypes people have of you that you fear. Um, and I think that's so true in imposter syndrome. I think about I, um, I was a Fulbrighter to Finland in 2016. So the 2015 to 2016 school year and prior to the Fulbright distinguished awards and teachers leaving, we all get together in DC for, I don't know if it was a full week, but it was like three or four days, um, with the, the group of there, I, there were about 40 or 50 of us that were going to do the Fulbright distinguished award in teaching all over the world. And there wasn't a single person in that room that didn't feel like an imposter, yet we had all been chosen. And we were all just like, I think I got the wrong email. Like, how am I a Fulbrighter? (laughs) Like, how 
how out of the thousands of applications they get, did they decide that like I was good enough to go and represent the U.S. in education in this other place? But it took a, you know, it took the whole time we were there. And then even while I was in Finland, a long time for me to be like, okay, I belong here because for so long I was like, these other people are so much better than me. They're so much better than me. Meanwhile, like I'm perfectly qualified on paper and like rationally and reasonably, if you look at my papers, like, yes, I belonged there. But like, when I looked at other people, I was like, oh, she wrote a book. Oh, she did this. Oh, she like, and the people that had just come back from their Fulbrights and the things that they had done, I was like, just going to Finland to like, hang out and see some education. Like these people <laughs> are starting whole programs and like, you know, doing all this wonderful things, doing all these wonderful things. And, um, you know, just those first couple of days, you don't even want to open your mouth because you don't want to look dumb in front of all these other Fulbrighters where you wouldn't, but you can't convince yeah. yourself of that. Some other guests have talked about belonging related to authenticity and sort of the feeling when you belong that you feel comfortable enough to share your true self. And that doesn't mean like your deepest, darkest secrets with all the people. It just means that the way you're presenting is authentic to, to the true you. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing is that when you're on high alert, you can't do that. And that there are moments sometimes when you feel more or less able to do that. And I think that it's critical, right? So like when you're in that room with the Fulbrighters, of course, on paper, you're all selected and you're like, Ooh, like the nerves and the imposter syndrome. Um, and then you're able to sort of move through and process that. Right. But what about Taya? Like, what about her paper? Like, what about her CV, so to speak? Like, where is she finding that belonging in a place? Like, I like how you're saying, you know, the place where she spends eight hours of her day. I haven't really thought about that until right now. But if you don't feel like you belong in the place where you literally spend the most hours, then what? Like, what can we do to facilitate belonging for her in a place where, you know, she's struggling academically where you didn't, right? So you had all of these sort of inherent gifts of belonging, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Advantages and, and privileges. What do you think? And I wonder if this connects to your work at all. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I don't know how to give that to her um, because I can't change the system she's in. Um, And it's frustrating because she does have gifts and she has gifts that are not recognized in school. Um, She's a brilliant thinker. She writes beautiful poetry Um, but doesn't want to share it because it's not what teachers are asking for. So why would she want to put herself out there? That's, that's terrifying. Um, She doesn't, you know, she doesn't fit in racially. Most of her friends are white. All of her friends are white, really. Um, You know, she's on the synchronized swimming team, which is, a mix of students of kids who are, um, there's a lot of Asian, both Korean and Chinese students, some Indian students, um, but she's the only one that's black. Um, And there are white kids too. So there, I think she feels like she belongs because there's a different goal um, and one that she can really be a good contributor to. Um, But 
I don't know that Taya ever feels like she really belongs somewhere. Like this is where I am meant to be. Um, And it's a little, it's very heartbreaking because she also talks about, you know, not knowing where that space is. Like if there was a space that I could give her, if she could say like, oh, but if, if I could be here, then I feel like I would really belong. But it, it's, she has so many layers because of adoption, because of her race, because of her academic abilities or disabilities, that there isn't really a, a perfect place for her where I felt like it was, school was a perfect place for me. Everybody looked like me. Everybody, I was smart like everybody else. My teachers loved me. Like, but I don't know how to find that for her. But when I think about my work, um, so I do a lot of work on personal interest projects and capstone projects. And so the the gist of these projects is um, students are designing a project where they are going to learn, solve, make, or do something. So they come up with the topic, they come up with how they're going to learn about it, execute it, what their final project is going to be, and there's always an authentic audience at the end. So these are projects that have been really, I don't want to say life-changing, that seems so extreme, but really impactful for kids because for the first time, they have full choice Mm -hmm. and they're getting kind of credit or acknowledgement for projects that their teachers had no idea that they were interested in or no idea that the kids had these talents or interests. Um, And it is so cool to see the work that comes out of these projects. I mean, we've got kids learning how to work a ham radio. We've got kids that are doing projects on car superchargers. Like you don't get to talk about your fascination with cars and engines and superchargers in school anywhere, unless you have the opportunity to do a personal interest project or your... I mean, nobody at Taya School recognizes her for her synchronized swimming ability. Meanwhile, she's on the third best team in the country. We're going to Croatia this summer to compete, (laughs) but she gets no recognition for that. We drive, like Brianne was saying with my chauffeuring, um, her gym is an hour away. So we spend two hours, four times a week, just commuting to practice and Um, And she then swims four hours at each of these practices. So, you know, she's swimming 16 hours a week, plus an extra eight hours of driving. She's hugely committed, um, but gets no positive esteem from it in school, the place where she spends eight hours. Um, I would just, I mean, I, I mean, I can't even imagine I chauffeur my kids and feel like a half an hour to a climbing wall is a long time. So I'm not going to complain anymore. Um, <laughs> I just want to hold space and acknowledge it's a yes. And for me, Liz, cause what I, I don't know you, I just, so that our audience knows like we're literally meeting for the first time. I've heard wonderful stories about you. And what I would just like to offer is to consider that your daughter actually is receiving a space for belonging and it's called your family. Yeah. Um, and even though, you know, she was adopted and doesn't look like you, just the fact that you asked your family about their sense of belonging, I don't think we can undervalue <laughs> how critically <laughs> important that is. So sometimes I wonder 
while I, like you, want my kids to feel that sense of belonging all day, every day at school, the best I can do sometimes is see them and let them hear that I see them. And I know that Colby loves climbing and no one probably knows about it. And your daughter is amazing at synchronized swimming and you know about it and you're investing. So I guess I just want to say that for me, it's a yes and that, you know, there isn't the perfect place. And maybe as parents, that's not our role, right? Like maybe it's to to be the person that does see our kid and, and their heart and their core. I don't know, just just a, just an additional thought to throw into the conversation. Yeah, yeah that is. I mean, I was thinking the same thing and, you know, the, the perfect place, I just came from Disney world, you know, that's like the perfect place. Right. <laughs> um, so that's sort of like, you know, the magical is, is sort of in my mind, but in, in reality, she has so much belonging in your family. And I know, and I don't know what it's like to, you know, raise a child of a different race. And so there, I understand what you're saying that there's an element of not belonging just inherent in that. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, <clears throat> I mean, you guys are incredible. And I say this to you all the time. We don't talk enough on the phone, but when we do, I'm always like, you are the best parent to these kids. Like hands down, like she's moved schools and like found all these really cool opportunities for Taya. And for somebody as academically minded as you and Adam are, because you're both educators, you know, you're so attuned to, to her gifts, academic or not. And you're like, yeah, she struggles with math. Who cares? (laughs) Like she'll be fine. We're going to get her through the math and she's going to be great at whatever she chooses to do. And she's definitely not going to be a mathematician and that's fine. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're just so open to seeing her strengths. And that to me is such a big piece of belonging. It's being in a place where she feels connected and where she feels seen like, like Harry, I really like that. And to me, that aligns really nicely with this capstone work. So can you, can you change the system? No, probably not, you know, that she's in. But what you're doing for these kids that you're working with just seems so in tune with this. I mean, to me, there's a direct line across. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just so when you think about school and engagement and how kids learn and how they feel like they belong, so much of what they have to do isn't that. And then you do these personal interest projects or capstone projects where they are allowed to be part of the community that they're excited about or learn something that we often talk about, you know, that thing you've always wanted to do, but never had the time. And so now we're giving you the time and we're saying you're going to get the academic credit for it because kids, especially some of our overworked kids are like, oh, I wish I had time to X, Y, Z, but I'm doing all my work. Well, this is now your work. This is your work. And, um, they, they just get to dive so deeply into a topic that they're excited about. And when I think about, um, you know, again, I'm going to go back to Brandon's talk the other day. And he said, um, he said a couple of different things that just, you know, how important connection is in school. And he was saying, we don't have a content problem in school. We have a connection problem was one of his quotes. And then he said, love first, teach second. You have to start with love. And, um, and we have to get, give kids 
not just windows, but mirrors, right? So kids have to see themselves in their content. They can have windows into other people's lives, but they also need the mirrors to be able to see themselves and what they are learning. And so those three things together are what a personal interest project is. Like, it's not about the content, it's about the connection that they are connecting to their teacher in a different way because they are talking about something they're actually passionate about. Like, I've seen hundreds of capstone projects now and the kids just get excited about having that voice and choice to do what they want. And really um, teachers talk about how they've connected to kids in ways they've never connected before because the kid isn't nervous to, to, to give the answer. They know the answer. They're the expert most often much more expert in the topic than their teacher, which is awesome. And the teacher really, as much as we talk about wanting the teacher to be the guide on the side, like in a PIP or a capstone, they have to be the guide on the side. They don't hold the content knowledge. Mm -hmm. They can just point you in the, like, have you looked at it on YouTube? Maybe there's a TikTok about it. Let's go to the library media specialist and maybe she has a magazine on it, whatever it is. They are really just guiding the kid's journey and not the holder of knowledge. So it changes so much in the relationship between students and kids where usually it's a hierarchical relationship. The teacher has the knowledge, the kids got a, you know, the goal of the game is to give the teacher back what they want. Um, PIP is so interesting because a lot of times the highest achievers really struggle with it because they're like, <laughs> no, but what do you think I should do my project? Yep. <laughs> And, you know, like, what do you think would be impressive or what would colleges like? And teachers are like, what do you like? It's mm. yours. Like, do it on what you want to do it on. Like, that's fantastic. I have to say as someone, well, we've all earned a doctorate. It, what I was thinking about, honestly, Liz, is like these kids that are doing this work are going to be so much better prepared for like doctoral like studies, if that's something that they want, because as someone who has guided way too many dissertations, that still <laughs> happens when they are 20, 30, 40, well, well accomplished in their field. And they still ask me, is this the way you want to see chapter three? And I'm like, what do you think? Right. So right. it's so, I love that. That's so beautiful that that's happening. Yeah. That happened to me for sure. Yeah. When I started, my <laughs> dissertation was going to be about critical thinking, not because I cared about it, because it's what I thought I should do, because that was like an initiative at Loyola at the time. And then, I mean, it took two days for somebody at Hopkins to help me unpack that and be like, no, what do you, yeah. the, the question was, what drives you crazy at work? What do you actually care about? And I just said, the students are so stressed out. It's unbelievable. And you know, there went, bing. so yeah, that was it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Liz, I love what you're saying. And I just want to ask you, because I know you work in curriculum, you've taught in all different types of settings, and you're a math educator by training. So playing a little devil's advocate, knowing that I believe in my heart with about the capstones and the personal interest projects, if you could change the system, I guess I could frame it largely, but how does this work to teach something like math? Like I get it if you want to explore a ham radio and and that's your your capstone project, but how does this work to get through curriculum? Like where the teacher does know more than the student because the teacher knows trigonometry and the student doesn't, or like, I, I get it big picture, but I don't really understand it from like a tactical 
right standpoint for kind of straight up curricular material so unfortunately it doesn't it doesn't like you can't you can't personal interest project your way through algebra 2 because mm -hmm. no one has an inherent interest in <laughs> intersecting polygons or you know a line crossing a parallelogram or crossing a parabola it's just not um, so the way that we see it play out in schools when we're talking about content is that a teacher will give, um, so I'm thinking about one school in particular that allows students to take PIP as a one semester course, and they can get a humanities credit for it, a STEM credit for it, or a elective, an elective credit for it. So I don't know how broad the graduation requirements are in Maryland or Massachusetts, but in Connecticut, you need nine STEM credits and nine humanities credits. So it's very broad. It's not, you need to take this math, this math, this math. So it's really broad. So they have set it up where it is a half a credit in STEM and the kids, the students have a choice of kind of the high level standards they want to demonstrate through their projects. Okay. So um, I'm thinking of a project where a girl uh, was really interested in lotus temples. So there are these temples that look like lotuses. Um, I believe they are Buddhist temples. And what she wanted to do was make a scale model of one out of clay. So there was a ton of math in there. Scale models, geometry, what a lotus leaf looks like. The I believe that they're probably one of those things that has the golden ratio in them or, you know, some sort of um, Fibonacci sequence or something. So there was lots of math in that, that she could point to by building this um, model to scale that she had hit all these math topics. Um, it's much harder to do when you are, you know, you have to teach XYZ math content because the kids have a standardized test at the end or chemistry content and they have a test at the end. In the past, we did do um, some team projects within content areas that kids had to solve a problem using the content area. So a chemistry class did a project on um, better ways to melt snow, like snow melt, because we know that the, the salt that you throw on the ground is bad for pets, it's bad for humans, it leaches into the whatever, blah, blah, blah. But salt brine or cheese brine has a really high salt content. And so they were looking at using cheese brine as a melting agent. Um, and they actually partnered with the University of Wisconsin, because where else would you go? For <laughs> um, and did this really great chemistry project. But the teacher has to make space for it and understand that, like, we might sacrifice some of the other standards to do this project that they're gonna remember. Like they, you know, we had chemistry kids do a project on fermentation um, where they were fermenting cheese maybe. They were also doing cheese. I don't know, cheese ferments maybe, ages, I guess. So um, we've had kids do a, we had kids do a bio project on growing plants in outer space where they were partnering with NASA because um, you can't grow plants in zero gravity, I guess but they made this like 
thing that spun so then it counteracted the not gravity or whatever. I mean, these are huge projects that the kids are taking on as a class within the content area, but the teacher has to be okay with saying like, well, we're going to, they're really going to understand the chemical process of fermentation or the biological processes of how a plant grows and why gravity. I mean, we know like photosynthesis and all of that stuff is important. I never thought about how gravity is important to it, but apparently it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and be okay with like letting kids dive deeply into that. And the same is true for humanities. Like you might sacrifice a book or two that you were going to read, but, and in humanities, it's a lot easier because you can hit more standards by doing a personal interest project, by infusing writing and reflection into it. But um, we certainly do get pushback from our STEM teachers. Like, I don't have time for that. I can't where do you want me to fit it in the curriculum? And the answer where we really do see it happening is as an elective course or as a STEM PIP or humanities PIP, we see it a ton in middle schools in all different places, whether it's um, a lot of kids, a lot of schools up here have what's called a win period, what I need or Mm -hmm. what I need now. It's a flexible period. Um, Library media specialists sometimes do it because they're really big into the research aspect of things. So they'll um, facilitate it. And we also really emphasize that these projects are what align with Portrait of a Graduate. And so the Portrait of the Graduate, I've read hundreds of them. They all look a little different to try to be unique, but ultimately it comes down to communication, creativity, critical thinking, um, and problem solving. Um, Maybe collaboration is in there, teamwork, sometimes, you know, responsible citizenship, but you can't show those things in your pre-calc test. You can't show those things on your essay about Piggy as a saint in Lord of the Flies. You can show those things when you start a 5K for breast cancer because your mother passed away from it. Like that is where you're showing all these skills. You show those skills when you work with your grandfather to learn how to operate the ham radio and you fail the first time and it doesn't work. And, you know, these are opportunities where there's so much failure and kids have to get comfortable with it, um, which is a topic. Yeah. And meanwhile, if, if we're circling back and remembering that, like, we started this conversation talking about belonging and how your daughter doesn't feel necessarily feel a sense of that in a place she spends eight hours. And so arguably a really effective way to start adjusting the system, because what, because what I'm, what I'm hearing is these courses could also be almost a welcome mat to students who don't. So like you're going to, so the chemistry teacher says, and look, I taught statistics. Like I, I get it. Like you got to get through stuff. But if, if what we said about what the research calls thwarted belonging, like you don't feel a sense of belonging, right? Um, if what we said about that is true, hijack your, your, your amygdala, right? All of that, your lizard brain. If that's happening in the chemistry class where the teacher needs to get through the objectives, that kid's not learning anyway. So why don't we let them start in a personal interest project where they find something about chemistry to which they connect so that when they take the standards-based chemistry class, they start to feel a sense of belonging, right? Like, so I think I love what you're saying, Liz, that we have to operate within a system that exists because it takes time to change the system. And maybe this is a door, right? A door, a welcome mat, whatever your metaphor. Because you even, I loved what you said as well, this idea of 
now being able to earn academic credit, right? Because we all have those students that are like, but I got to do this thing because I got to do this thing and get here. So integrating these PIPs and other experiences into the current system, maybe that's a way to start to slowly shift the system, right? To build a new system. So I just, I mean, that's so, I just love what you're saying about that. I just love these projects. <laughs> I've just seen so many kids. I mean, high achievers always do fantastic projects. We know that. But to see the kid that typically has not succeeded in school and come in and like just shine. We had, I was at a, a final presentation at a school and um, the, the assistant mm -hmm. principal came up to me, the principal came up to me, a school counselor came up to me and they pointed to this girl and they said, that girl is in the office for the wrong reasons every week multiple times a week. And to see her standing over there teaching kids how to do cornrows and braids mm -hmm. and like that she is showing them something and that she, that all these teachers are over there watching her do this thing that she's so good at and is her career goal. She wants to open up her own salon. She wants to go to Aveda and be a hairstylist. There is no space for that in this school. Normally we want mm -hmm. our kids going to high achieving colleges. That girl never gets the right attention. And for her to spend this whole day, just getting positive attention for this project she has done has been like, was worth the entire school doing this experience just for that one girl. And you're like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. It just, it's such a good reminder. Cause I think Brianne, you see it and I see it like when you hold space and make room, like the things that are possible are just like mind blowing. Right. Like the, the, I just, yeah, I just love that. I mean, it goes back to what you said before. Um, Brandon Fleming said, love first, teach second. Yeah. Um, in our school district, we are the first um, school district in Massachusetts to hire a full-time DEI director. And his programming with the kids is called LIT, Love, Inclusion, Trust. And for him, love is always first. And I just love, I love, ha ha ha, um, that you mentioned that. I'm a big fan of Bell Hooks, who also believes in love and um Brianne, we had um Dr. Snod. I feel like we have quoted Dr. Snodgrass so many <laughs> times. She start she really started us off this season with the idea of radical acceptance. And I think that's all all related. So if we could just infuse a little bit more love into our our school buildings, maybe that would be a step in the right direction. You know, it's so funny that word comes up because I was at a new faculty orientation presenting on um belonging and connection and, you know, that kind of stuff. And the person in front of me gave a, a spiel that I had not heard before. And it was all about love. And I'm like, love, I mean, what are we saying? I, I said, I followed him and I was like, am I supposed to use the word love? Because I don't really generally use that in my place of work, but it was all this. It was just another word to talk about all the things that you're, that you're speaking up here. To me, that word is like, Ooh, that's, that's a word that could rub you in a, in a weird way, but I hear, and I believe in my bones, like the meaning behind it and a hundred percent, the connection before the content. I mean, we've talked about that. I, I believe that we, I think we learned a lot about that in our research through the pandemic where 
mm-hmm. um, it became so clear that that absolutely had to happen. There mm-hmm. was no space for content because yeah. we were all in that in that space of high alert. I think that you were talking about before, and to to quell that a little bit, we had to connect and then move in. So, and I, to circle back to my question before, and you did a really nice job answering. I think to summarize what I heard, it's a yes and. It's that. We can't personal interest project our way through Algebra 2, got that. And at the same time, can we make it more relevant? Can we connect to things that students like, which to me is pretty easy to do. I mean, I don't teach Algebra 2, but upfront, like just connecting with the students, getting to know them, getting to know their interests, shouting that out, having a couple minutes where you talk about that kind of stuff, and then maybe acknowledge the fact that Algebra 2 seems kind of dry and it does relate to something that Liz really likes or something that, you know, Carrie really likes. So I think there are ways to keep that content interesting and engaging as you, as you move through it. And I think it would be fantastic if we could prioritize, like what's the most important content and then leave space for those projects. Cause I think, like you said, those are the things that are so memorable and I also think that we have to teach the things. We have to teach the parabolas. You threw out more math words today, by the way. <laughs> Parabola, Fibonacci, Fibonacci like, sequence. Those are words I haven't oh heard in a goodness. long time. It is yeah. true. I mean, it is true. Like, like, so we have twin second graders and a fifth grader, and um, they had to do interviews, the interview a family member or a person and talk about sort of a move, like what that was like, what was it about, why'd you do it, just to learn more about someone. And they brought home an interview sheet and our daughter who um, in a lot of ways is compliant like I was as a student, like she does the thing, she wants it done three days early. And then our her brother, who is her twin, he waits to the last minute, he's sort of all over the map. And so I was thinking, this is a writing assignment we need to write. And I said, Henry, what are you going to do? And he's like, um, I want to do a video. And I was like, hmm. And I emailed his teacher and she's like, absolutely. I just want them to enjoy this. So for so right. So even in a like three minute video, yes, maybe it should have been practicing writing. But what was getting him excited was doing a video interview. And I'm like, what a great skill. I'm not yeah. that good at video interviews. <laughs> like he's going to be better at this. And, I, and he was showing me, of course, like how to how to do it and how to do it, you know, how to change it. So I think there are, I guess, all of that's to say. There are little moments, right, even within small assignments that we can add those sort of per- mini personal interest projects. Yeah. And um, what if he then writes a reflection on the video? Like exactly. what if they still get to the writing, but right. he got to do what he wanted to do first yep. and have yep. that experience. And then he'll probably enjoy the writing more because he's writing about something that was engaging. Yeah. And it's not just a slog that, oh, I have to do this again. Right. Like it's right. the variety. So, yeah. Well, and I'm just going to drop in this idea of so chat gpt has been like a bomb in education and so i see both of you who are (laughs) teaching um you know but i've done a lot of presentations in the last since december about how chat gpt can't do this right like chat gpt can't Mm. do the personal interest project it can maybe tell you how to build the birdhouse it can't build the birdhouse it can tell you it can give you a time management plan for you to study for the ham radio license test, but it can't do the test. It can't plan the 5k. It can't build the Lotus temple and give you all the, you know, maybe it could help you with the mathematics of it, but 
ultimately ChatGPT can't do your personal interest project for you. And that is the other place where we need to go, right? So, you know, that video that your son made is so much more valuable than the writing because ultimately, like, maybe he won't need to write that much. Maybe not. <laughs> um, which is terrifying to those of us who have spent 30, 40 years becoming really good writers. Yeah. But I use ChatGPT to do so much now, um, but it can't do everything. And yeah. so these hands-on projects, again, are going to be what kids need to be able to do because they teach those skills. Again, if you look at those portrait of a graduate skills, it's never like be a good mathematician, be a good writer. It's just mm -hmm. about being in the world and AI is going to be able to do some of those things. But again, like AI cannot effectively collaborate with your coworker. It cannot yeah. think critically. It can give you answers, but it can't think critically. Um, you know, so emphasizing the human things that a bot isn't going to be able to do <clears throat> is what yeah. comes through with um with personal interest projects as well. Like they we need more and more and more of this kind of work because that essay on Lord of the Flies, you can put into ChatGPT and get it. That essay yeah. on, you know, whatever it is that you want to have kids write about, chat can do that. It's got true. It's true. I mean, it's similar. And I think mostly it's the adults in the room afraid of letting go of things that feel comfortable and what they learn. Cause I think the same debate is happening around cursive writing, at least in, mm -hmm. in our schools. And, and every once in a while I catch myself saying, but my son needs to learn cursive writing. His handwriting is terrible. He needs better penmanship. And then I also catch myself saying, will he though? Like when's the last time you wrote? Like when there? is the last <laughs> time I like wrote, like even when I do my signature now, it's usually in my electronic <laughs> signature being attached to some document. So it's not even. So I think it's good for the adults in the room to, it's just a good reminder to stay curious, right? About who knows. And, and I love the idea of the human things. I love how mm -hmm. you said that, that like focus on the human things. Cause right. What you wrote, what you told us for the portrait of a graduate, communication, creativity, critical thinking, problem solving, maybe global citizen. Those are all human things. Those are not things that the the bots or AI um, can necessarily do, right? So do the human things. I love that. Yeah, that's cool. I think I we're, I feel like we're, are we coming to a close, Brianne? I don't know. What do you think? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> feels like maybe a good, good pause yep. at this point. Um, so. I will just um, express my gratitude, Liz, for all your brilliance and your willingness to be vulnerable and share about your own experiences and your family's experiences. And uh, it's been a pleasure having this conversation with you. And Brianne, it's always fun uh, to connect. It has been a couple. It feels like it's been a little while since we yeah. connected. So it's yeah. good. So thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of Tell Me This. Uh, be good to each other and take care of yourself. All right. Thanks. So sincere under the glaciers of your last year.